1 Timothy, verses 18 through 20, this is God's word. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, now as we um, seek to listen to what you say to us in your word from 1 Timothy, we admit our need. Lord, our need is for your spirit to come and to so work in our, our hearts and our minds to give us understanding, uh, to uh, allow us to see the reality that is here before us. And Father, we also acknowledge that uh, because we live in a culture and a world that is against you and uh, is deceived by the father of lies, Satan, that is often difficult for us to receive your word, to acknowledge that it is right, true, and good. So, Father, we pray for you for the spiritual work to be done in our hearts and minds, that we would see, Father, and understand this is right, this is good, this is true, and it's what we need. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Every Sunday morning in the first decade of my life, I would begin by singing um, Sunday school songs in uh, the basement of our church building, along with all my other classmates and, and friends, and uh, I and the other boys were not always the most enthusiastic singers uh, during that time, uh, I'll admit, but there was one song that I and the other boys in my Sunday school class always got excited about singing. Actually, we were far more excited about doing the actions to the song uh, than just singing the lyrics, for the actions included marching, riding a horse, shooting a rifle, and flying a plane. Some of you may recognize the song already. It's, I'm in the Lord's army. It goes, I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never fly or the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. So I'm not going to lie. Uh, the best part of the song, of course, was shoot the artillery, because we acted out shooting each other, me and my friends, or shooting some of the girls in our class that we thought were a little too annoying uh, for us to be uh, putting up with, singing and doing the actions to that song, as well as a song, Only a Boy Named David, where we got to, you know, uh, use David's sling and kill Goliath uh, in that song, were the two songs that boys in our Sunday class especially enjoyed singing during those years. The Sunday school teachers and song leaders in my church were doing a similar thing for each of their young students, as Paul seems to be doing for the younger Timothy here in our passage in 1 Timothy. Uh, they were getting us to think that being a Christian in this world is similar to being a soldier in a war, that the Christian life is a battle. And we need to be actively engaged in the fight. There's also a fairly well-known hymn that I also sang in my home church growing up. There weren't any actions to go along with this hymn. 
but I still enjoyed singing it. You're probably familiar with, with this one as well. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe, forward into battle, see his banners go. Now, songs like this bother some people. Some people don't appreciate the comparison of Christianity to warfare and Christians to soldiers. It sounds intimidating. It doesn't give a very good image to outsiders. What does it mean that Christians are marching as to war? Whom are Christians fighting? What is this war about? Well, you may not be as familiar with the second verse of the hymn, but it provides us with some help in understanding what this battle is all about and relates well with our passage from 1 Timothy. So the second verse of Onward Christian Soldiers goes like this. Like a mighty army moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. We are not divided, all one body we, one in hope and doctrine, one in charity. Charity meaning love. So there it is. That, that is what the fight is all about. For the church to be the church of God in Jesus Christ, we must remain one in hope, doctrine, and love. Our hope is the hope revealed to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we must keep the gospel central in our teaching and our preaching, which then points to being one in doctrine, that is, in our teaching. In order for the church to remain one in doctrine, we must make sure our teaching doesn't stray away from what the apostles of Jesus Christ taught in the New Testament. And this is a battle because of the constant influence uh, of the lies of the enemy, that is the lies of Satan, and the godless philosophies of the world which are all around us in our culture. It will also be a battle for each individual church and believer to remain one in love. That is how we live out the gospel in our personal lives and how we hold one another accountable within the body. So no, we, we are not arming ourselves with guns and bullets to fight in this battle, but we must take the battle seriously. We must fight the good fight as believers and what a church believes and how it behaves is at the center of the war. So our main theme from, from this last paragraph in 1 Timothy chapter 1 is Christians must recognize that we are in a battle for truth and holy living. We must recognize we are in a battle for truth and holy living. So these are the two main fronts of the battle that all believers are in. The first is a battle for holding on to the truth that saves, the truth that sets sinners free, the truth about God and the gospel according to the Holy Scriptures. The second is the battle for living out that truth in our lives. If the church goes astray in what it teaches or in how it 
lives before the world, well, then it will cease being the church. And it will give a false or a blasphemous representation of the Lord to the world that is in need of salvation. So that's what the word of Christ through the Apostle Paul is telling us today in these verses. And we'll work our way through these verses using uh, three main headings. The first, that it is a fight to persevere in sound teaching and living from verses 18 and the first part of verse 19. Secondly, that there will always be examples of those who didn't take the fight seriously. That's the second half of verse 19. And then third, the church must deal faithfully and lovingly with those who stray. Uh, verse 20. So first then, verses 18 and the first part of verse 19, it's a fight to persevere in sound teaching and living. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies pre- previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So Paul now is returning to the charge that he was giving Timothy in this letter. If you look, look back at verses 3 and 4, you'll see what he's referring to there uh, from verse eight, 18. Verses 3 and 4 say, As I urge you, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and unlisted genealogies, which promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So there were certain persons whom Timothy knew full well who were straying away from teaching the gospel or the doctrine of God's salvation through Christ that was revealed to Paul by the Lord Jesus. And then Paul passed on to the churches that he had helped to plant as an apostle. Ephesus, uh, where Timothy is serving here, was one of those churches. And we see here that from the very beginning, these churches faced challenges in maintaining sound or healthy doctrine. They had challenges maintaining the right teaching of the gospel from the very beginning. Timothy's charge is to lead the church in addressing these false teachers and make sure they know that they may not teach, as he says, any different doctrine within the church. Now that, that word translated as different doctrine that Paul uses there is where we get our English word heterodox or heterodoxy, which is false doctrine uh, or false teaching, teaching that's not in accordance with established or accepted uh, Christian doctrine. Uh, the concern was not just that, that Paul didn't agree with what these men were teaching. The concern was that their teaching would lead people astray, that it would lead people away from Jesus and thus away from salvation and away from eternal life in Christ. So that is what is at stake with gospel teaching. If the teaching is orthodox, that is in agreement with the revealed truth from the Lord, then it will lead to salvation and eternal life. It will lead to having sinners justified before God. But if it is not in accordance with the revealed gospel message of the Lord Jesus, well, then that teaching will lead people away from salvation and will end up in their eternal destruction. That's the battle. That is the war. So the stakes are high. 
Now, in order to encourage and strengthen Timothy for the fight, Paul reminds him of the prophecies that were made about him at his ordination. Paul mentions Timothy's ordination into uh, the work of the gospel on a few different occasions. Uh, Each of them are meant to encourage Timothy to press on in the work, in the calling that the Lord has given him. Paul doesn't tell us uh, the content of the prophecies here, but they were most likely in relation to God's call on his life to to serve the Lord. Um, Pastors, missionaries, and churches would do well to follow Paul's example here. Uh, Ministry is challenging. Ministry is hard. It can get lonely. And when it gets hard, pastors and other ministry workers can, can question, is it even worth it? I've mentioned before that in the summer before I graduated from college, I worked for a wheat harvesting crew, uh, driving a truck for them, and uh, then the very next summer, so right after I graduated from, from college, I moved down to Des Moines, Iowa, um, and began working for a church there part-time, and also for a, a moving company there in Des Moines, and uh, we did uh, residential moves around the city and then outside of the city, and also uh, deliveries for a couple of different furniture stores there in Des Moines. And uh, there's been quite a few times um, when ministry has gotten hard, or when I felt very lonely in ministry, where I thought to myself, man, it would just be so much easier if I were driving a grain truck. Remember when I was just delivering furniture? Man, wasn't that such a great job? I could be doing that now instead of this. But then I remember my calling. Or I look up at my wall in my study and see my certificate of ordination hanging there, and I remember what those men that signed that certificate, what those men told me and prayed for me when I was ordained. Ministers have to know that God has given them the call to serve. And no minister is allowed to leave until the Lord releases him from his call. And that's what Paul is doing here for Timothy, reminding him of this. Timothy is instructed here to wage the good warfare, or as other translations have it, to fight the good fight. So the battle itself is a good fight. It is a battle that is righteous in God's sight. So how is Timothy to fight this good fight? And how are we to fight it today? Well, Paul sums up the way we are to fight the good fight at the beginning of verse 19. He says, holding faith and a good conscience. We see at the end of verse 19 that Paul is making a a contrast with those who have made shipwreck of their faith. And in our understanding, the way this is translated can be a little misleading. In the original, there is a definite article before the word faith at the end of verse 19. It's a definite article, so it literally reads, made shipwreck of the faith. Not their faith, but the faith. It is not necessarily referring to one's personal belief, although that is certainly impacted by it. It's more so referring to one's handling of the faith. That is the apostolic doctrine, the teaching of the Lord Jesus and his gospel. 
It's referring to sound doctrine. So therefore, uh, that is what Paul is getting at with his instruction at the beginning of the verse on holding faith and a good conscience. We are, not, we, 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 we are told to hold on to the faith. Hold on to the faith. We are not to stray away from the sound teaching on the gospel. Make sure that your faith is instructed by the faith, by the sound teaching of the gospel. But there is another way to stray away from just believing or teaching that's not faithful to the Bible. There's also behavior. Or living in such a way that's not faithful to God's word. That's, that is not living with a good conscience, as he, as he says it here. Doing things that you know are wrong. Doing things that you know are contrary to God's word. That will lead to having a, a, a bad conscience. So we must fight the battle by, as Paul says later in chapter 4, verse 16, by keeping a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Or other translations have it, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Life and teaching, behavior and beliefs, they both must go together. Like having both the right and the left shoes. You, you can't be faithful unless you are teaching the truth about God and keeping your life free from living in sin and impurity and disobedience. Persist in this, he says in chapter 4. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. So again, that's what's at stake in this battle, in this warfare. That's why it is a good fight. Why we must engage in the battle, the salvation of your own soul and the souls of those you have influence over are at stake. Then verse 19, the rest of verse 19, there will always be examples of those who didn't take the fight seriously. There will always be examples of those who didn't take the fight seriously. I'll read the whole verse here, verse 19. Holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Now, this is a, a sad reality, but, but one that we have seen in the New Testament and even within our own lifetimes. Some people seem to start off well within the church. They seem to be strong in their faith. Maybe they are entrusted with leadership positions, but then something happens. Maybe they stray away slowly, or maybe it seems to be very sudden and shocking, but they make shipwreck of the faith. They stray off course in their teaching or their living and fail to represent the truth of the gospel. As far as going off course in teaching the faith in my lifetime, there have been a number of controversies within evangelicalism where pastors, teachers, and churches have sadly made shipwreck of the faith. Uh, there's been a battle over the inerrancy of the Bible on whether or not the scriptures, all of the scriptures, can be trusted as being authoritative, as really being God's holy word. That is a battle uh, that evangelicals will have to continue to fight for if we lose the trustworthiness of the scriptures, well, we'll lose everything. We'll lose everything that our faith is based on. 
And there's also been the fight for salvation through Christ alone. The more pluralistic our country has gotten, with so many different cultures settling within our cities, and of people from different cultures and religious uh, or religions attending our universities, some evangelicals have increasingly been open to the idea that Jesus Christ is a way of salvation. It's a way, but not necessarily the way. Along with that, there has been a growing distaste among more uh, progressive evangelicals regarding the doctrine of the atonement in that God the Son had to shed his blood on the cross in order to satisfy the wrath of God for our sins. So we must continue this fight. We must continue this fight to defend the truth that we read in the very next chapter. If you want to look down at chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, where it says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. When I was just getting into seminary 20 years ago, I remember the big controversy at that time was over the foreknowledge of God. Uh, some influential pastors and writers were elevating the free will of man so high that they believed God's knowledge of what would happen in the future had to be limited. That God did have the ability to know the future, our future choices, what we do and what we what we decide. He did have the ability to know the future, but in order to provide free will to humans, well, he, free, he freely self-limited that knowledge of the future. Therefore, they argued he, he wasn't sovereign over all that took place in the world. He, he knew all the possibilities of what might happen, but he just didn't know exactly which choices we would make. Because we have to be free, right? This was a very attractive teaching for many in those days, but it has since been shown to, to be not just contrary to what the Bible teaches, but blasphemous and nonsense. But it's not just rejecting the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Churches and church members have also made shipwreck of their faith by also rejecting a good conscience. They have compromised their moral standards. They have followed the world's ways in regard to sexual behavior and in relationships or in other lifestyle choices. Uh, as the Lord Jesus taught us in his parable of the soils, the cares of the world, that is what the world cares about, what the world is concerned about, what is big to people in the world, those things, the deceitfulness of riches, that is our wealth, our money, our, our comfort, and the desires for other things, other things contrary to the things that the Lord wants us to be concerned about, they, they enter in, Jesus says, and they choke the word. They become bigger than the gospel. As I mentioned before, both sound doctrine and faithful living go hand in hand. So, so often when someone begins to compromise what he is teaching, and begins to stray over into maybe a more liberal understanding of the scriptures, well, it's because he's already made the compromise in his moral life. 
And it's remarkable how we seek to justify our behavior by how then we teach. If a Bible teacher leaves his wife for a younger woman, all of a sudden, his teaching will be more geared towards emphasizing God's grace and freedom rather than the law and judgment. Unfortunately, we probably can all think of examples of Christian leaders, Bible teachers, or pastors who have made shipwreck of the faith and of their ministries. Uh, in the first, first part of December, um, this past December, I received an email from the EFCA national office informing me that another national ministry leader within the EFCA had to be dismissed due to moral failure. That's the second fairly well-known EFCA national leader that has had to step down due to moral failure in the past six years. Both of these men had gained attention and concern from pastors like me in the free church who were just a little concerned, bothered with some of the things that they had said, taught, written in their books. And then we hear that things were going on like this in their personal life that was immoral. And so then they were removed from their positions of leadership. And it is heartbreaking and maddening. And yet we, we are never to look down upon those who have fallen or gone astray Rather, Paul is using their stories here as a warning to us. It is to be a reminder of our weaknesses. He's saying the same could very well happen to you if you're not careful, if you're not engaging in the battle, if you're not taking the fight for faithful teaching and faithful living seriously. So when you hear of one who has fallen in the church, you might be tempted to get smug, you know, look down upon them, but instead you ought to mourn and cry out to God on behalf of your own soul and say to yourself, there but for the grace of God go I. And finally, verse 20, the church must deal faithfully and lovingly with those who stray, among whom, so that among whom made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul mentions two men whom Timothy and possibly many in the church in Ephesus would have known, Hymenaeus and Alexander. If Hymenaeus is the same Hymenaeus that Paul mentions in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17, then he had, it says there, swerved from the truth, that is from the faith, from, from the sound doctrine. He had swerved away from that and had been teaching that the resurrection of believers has already taken place. And, Paul says, his teaching had caused other believers to be confused and greatly troubled. Alexander is a far more common name um, from those days than Hymenaeus. Uh, and there are other um, Alexanders mentioned by Paul in 2 Timothy 4, 14, as well as in the book of Acts. Uh, we're not sure if this is the same Alexander as the ones mentioned there. Um, but for many that don't understand what Paul is talking about here, this, this verse, well, it sounds kind of scary. It sounds a little harsh. We may wonder, what's going on here, Paul? One of the reasons why we don't know what Paul is talking about in this verse is that we are children of our secular culture. 
We're all children of this culture that we've grown up in, a culture that doesn't believe in Satan, a culture that doesn't think blaspheming is that big of a deal, a culture that just thinks church is just some nice social club that Christians can take or leave. It really doesn't make that much difference to their faith if they go to church or not. It's really not that big of a deal. Take it or leave it. That's why this sounds so foreign to us, what Paul's saying here. We've drifted away from a biblical worldview. So what Paul said he did with Hymenaeus and Alexander was exactly what the Lord Jesus taught the apostles to do to those within the church who claim to be believers but who are unwilling to repent of known sin. Sins such as an immoral lifestyle or false teaching that misrepresented God and led people astray. The Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 taught how the church is to deal with such wayward people within its ranks. They are to be confronted, first just by another believer or sister who observes uh, the uh, sin of false teaching uh, or observes the, 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 the sin they are doing. So that's where it should start. Just another believer that observes this, hears this, approaches, confronts the, uh, believe, the other believer uh, himself or herself. Begins there, just a one-on-one conversation, and then if they refuse to repent when they're confronted with that sin, then that brother or sister who did the confronting should bring one or two other believers along with the next time in order to plead with the offending member to turn and to repent of their sin, to seek reconciliation with God and with uh, others. If they still refuse to repent, They are then to let the church know so the church as a whole can plead with them and pray for them. But finally, if they still refuse to acknowledge their sin and turn away from it, then, Jesus says, they are to be put out of the church. They are to be treated as a non-believer because that's exactly how they are living. So this is not a punishment. This is not just a way of being this is, this is just a way of being honest with the sinner. They aren't living like a Christian if they refuse to repent of their sin. So treat them as they're living. A good, a good uh, definition of a Christian is someone who confesses to being a sinner. Someone who regularly repents of, of their sins and trusts in Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins and for their salvation. That's, that's the definition of a Christian. And if, there, if there's a Christian, when confronted with their sin, who's unwilling to do that, well, then they're, they're communicating, I'm not a Christian. I'm not trusting in Christ. I don't need Christ. So this is, this is known as church discipline and uh, excommunication, which is removing someone from church membership, um, which is a step in that process by the church, it is what Paul is referring to here in verse 20. Hymenaeus and Alexander had refused to acknowledge their sin and their false teaching uh, and or their immoral living, and so they had been excommunicated from the fellowship of, of believers that they were a part of. So Paul describes that as being handed over to Satan. That is, they're removed from the safety and the spiritual protection of the church and put into the world which is Satan's domain. 
which Satan has influence over. They're put out there for a specific purpose. Paul says what that, what that purpose is. That they may learn not to blaspheme. So we are to know the goal of church discipline is restoration. The goal is restoration. Paul had not given up, given up on these men, and the church hadn't given up on them either. They had made shipwreck of their faith, but, it, but as Paul knew maybe better than anyone else, it's possible to survive a shipwreck. Paul had survived three literal shipwrecks in his life. He knows it's possible to, to survive. So what Paul is implying here is that the church must do this hard but loving work of church discipline when it is necessary to do so. You have a church member who has professed to be a Christian, that is a, rep a representative of Christ to the community in which they live. They begin to teach things that are misrepresenting who Christ is or telling lies about what the Bible says well, then something must be done for their own protection as well as the spiritual protection of others within the church that they have influence over. Or, as is more often the case, if a church member strays away from living in the fear of the Lord and is known to be immoral in a relationship or maybe in their business practices or, or, or with how they treat other people in the community or within the church, well, then for their own good and for the honor of Christ, the church must confront them, show them their love by showing them their need to repent. It is a difficult and uncomfortable thing to do. Paul knows that. That's why he's encouraging Timothy by remember those prophecies that were spoken over you. Remember your calling. God's with you in this. So it must be done carefully and prayerfully, but it is necessary for the good of the sinner's soul as well as for the good of the church. And again, it's for the goal of restoration. All they have to do, all they have to do is grasp hold of the gospel. If they've made shipwreck of the faith, all they gotta do is grab hold of the gospel and they'll stay afloat and they'll be brought back into the church if they repent of their sin, acknowledge their sin, and trust in Christ alone for their forgiveness. So we must recognize that we are in a battle. We are in a battle for truth, a battle for holy living. We are to take comfort in the fact that the hope of the church doesn't rest in us, is not dependent upon us, but it's upon Christ and his promise he is the church's savior he is our lord he is our head as it says in the third verse of onward christian soldiers crowns and thrones may perish kingdoms rise and wane but the church of jesus constant will remain gates of hell can never against that church prevail we have christ's own promise and that can never fail so onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, and we do pray that you would so work in our hearts that we would more and more um, live out 
of the instruction that you give to, that you give to us here. And Father, help us to see it's not about us. Uh, the church's future, the church's faithfulness does not rest uh, in us, but in Christ. May our eyes be on him. Uh, may our hearts, Lord, be uh, inclined towards him and his gospel. May we trust in him, Lord, with our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.